How do scholars, artists, and audiences reconcile being anti-racist with loving Shakespeare? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. Farah Kareem Cooper is a professor of Shakespeare studies at King's College London and the director of education at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Her new book, The Great White Bard, explores the language of race and difference in plays such as Antony and Cleopatra, Titus Andronicus, and The Tempest. Kareem Cooper also looks at the ways Shakespeare's work became integral to Britain's imperial project and its sense of cultural superiority. Add to this the fact that Kareem Cooper is an unapologetic Shakespeare fan. The subtitle of her book is How to Love Shakespeare While Talking About Race. Far from casting Shakespeare out of the classroom or the playhouse, Kareem Cooper shows new ways to appreciate him. And by drawing connections between the plays and current events, she offers an eyes-wide-open tour of Shakespeare's continued relevance. The seed of the idea for the book was planted in 2021 when Kareem Cooper received a letter from a member of the public. Here's Farah Kareem Cooper in conversation with Barbara Bogave. If you could, tell me about the letter you received a few years ago that prompted you to write this book. Well, the letter I received was because I had launched at The Globe in 2021 a series of anti-racist Shakespeare webinars. And the main purpose of these webinars was really just to get an actor and a scholar together to talk about uh, every single play that we put on in the theater season in the context of race and identity. And when we launched them, there was a huge backlash on Twitter and in some of the more conservative of British newspapers. And when you say backlash, you mean like hate mail? Hate mail. Yeah, absolute hate mail. I mean, some of the most shocking racist things I've ever seen. And uh, there was this sense that somehow the Globe was betraying Shakespeare or assaulting Shakespeare in some way or canceling Shakespeare even. So it was quite a, a quite a hyperbolic response, but it did prompt various people to um, send letters to the artistic director, to me. And so the letter that I received was very, very sincere in its anger. <laughs> and it was basically somebody telling me that uh, I'm a custodian Uh, of Shakespeare and that I have a very sacred duty to look after the canon. And um, just because all and sundry don't necessarily like Shakespeare doesn't mean it's my job to bring Shakespeare down to the masses, essentially. Uh, All and sundry. I feel like that's the operative phrase. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. For me, it meant people of color essentially, because the webinars were about Shakespeare and race. It was about thinking about anti-racist approaches to talking about Shakespeare, to teaching Shakespeare, to performing Shakespeare. Um, and it was just providing some insights. And most of the of the participants in the webinars were people of color. Okay. So I imagine you weren't terribly surprised, but the force of it sounds really uh, extreme. I think so. I I wasn't terribly surprised, but I was also annoyed because I'd been at the Globe for, at that point, about 17 years. And so all of a sudden, I was now destroying Shakespeare when I'd spent the last almost two decades of my career promoting Shakespeare and making Shakespeare as accessible as possible. 
So that I got really annoyed by that. I had a kind of basic reaction as I was reading your book, which is whether you were writing it for maybe a younger audience who who reads these plays or sits in the theater and they're thinking, wait a second, I, I have this, I, I have a question about what's going on with race in this, or I'm feeling uncomfortable watching this racist 16th century stuff, uh, or it comes off to me that way, but I'm afraid to say anything because people think I'm inappropriately applying a racial subtext to Shakespeare. Yeah, I think I did have a certain, to a certain extent, a kind of generation in mind when I was writing this book. But I was also really thinking about current, for example, theater directors who might want to take on a play like Othello or people who are training actors at the moment or people who are teaching school at the moment. So we know that Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth are set texts and that the the notion of race is something that emerges in both of those plays. And there's anti-Black language in some of the plays, even in comedies. So, you know, young people will definitely, as you say, feel uncomfortable when they come across those lines. And I really want teachers to be prepared to answer the questions that they might get. Well, you lay your thesis out pretty clearly in your prologue, um, and that's that Shakespeare's texts are a reservoir of what's known as race-making or racial formation, uh, meaning the social process of creation of racial identities. And that's a quote. Could you explain that for us, please? And and, and I guess I, I read that and I thought, well, aren't all texts potentially a reservoir for that? Um, Well, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But I think what's interesting is that Shakespeare's texts have somehow been bracketed from that, right? So Shakespeare can't be about race. Um, Right, they've been put in a special category. Exactly. They're in a special box where um, race doesn't count and you shouldn't talk about it. And uh, that sounds really silly when we say it, but it's actually how Shakespeare's been sort of received over the centuries. But the idea of racial formation is just that. It is that notions and ideas and systems of thinking about difference and that difference being racially inflected were in development over a couple of hundred years. So from the Middle Ages, you can detect it. You can detect the way in which people are thinking and talking about phenotype, about the difference between black and white and the symbolism that's loaded onto those to um, racial categories. And then that's inherited as you move through into the Renaissance period. And certainly classical texts themselves harken back to uh, sort of templates and frameworks for thinking about difference and classifying individuals and groups into superiority categories or inferiority categories. So all of that together amounts to a process of racial thinking. Yeah, but unlike other playwrights of his day, Shakespeare gets put in this box because he became just the apex of Western culture and and this kind of national saint, as you say, of England. But is it revelatory that Shakespeare is inseparable from and integral to the empire building that also helped make him into this national saint? Yes. So I think what's really interesting is that 
people always want to say that Shakespeare is pre-colonial, when we know that although England was a very small player on the global stage in the 16th century, they had very, very ambitious designs on becoming a sort of global giant. So Shakespeare was witnessing a kind of proto-colonial design. And then by the time you get to the 18th century, and Shakespeare's gone through the Restoration, and then you see what's happening in 1670, the Royal African Company is formed, and, and England is well on its way into dominating the slave trade. And it was at this time where art and culture aesthetics, taste, all of these things are being redefined and cultivated in a time of English wealth. And Shakespeare is really sort of instrumentalized for the same purposes. And so it's really hard to extract Shakespeare from the colonial unless you look at how he was constructed in the 18th century and realize that so much of that construction is still with us, that we still have this sort of what I call bardic notion of of Shakespeare as this lone genius with a quill and a puffy shirt. <laughs> when when actually he was just, if you go back to the 16th century, he was just a, a jobbing playwright. He was a brilliant playwright, but a jobbing playwright who was working in a very scrappy theater industry. Right. And all those people writing you hate mail about you catering to the groundlings or something are completely missing that, that, that <laughs> yeah, point, exactly. right? Okay, let's get to the plays. And you start with uh, Titus Andronicus. Aaron is uh, Shakespeare's first Moor character. Yeah. Um, and just another basic question, what exactly is a Moor in Shakespeare's time? Yeah, so it can be quite a slippery term, but it simply is the English version of the word Moros, which refers to people from Mauritania. And so it was used kind of as a blanket term to describe Black Africans. But sometimes it was used to describe North Africans or Arabs. Sometimes you see the word white Moors. You see that phrase to refer to Arabs. And or you might see Black Moor or Blackamore, which means explicitly a sub-Saharan African. Right. And already we're getting into the, uh, that's proof positive that the people then in the early modern period were thinking about different kinds of otherness and, and race. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's who, that's who he was. And what's, we, we have a drawing from the time um, by Henry Peacham, uh, who was in, it must have been in the audience watching Titus Andronicus, but it's the only drawing we have of that of that time of a of a play um, on stage. And um, it's of Titus, and you can see Aaron in it, and he is explicitly black. Um, Aaron's really interesting because, it, it, well, he's just so dimensional, although we think of him as completely evil in the play. Mm. But you write that it's striking that Aaron displays a kind of black pride or self-love mm. that no other character in the play exhibits, not even Titus. Um, are, are we talking here about Aaron's speech, Cole Black is better than another hue, in that it scorns yes. to bear another hue? Tell us about yes. that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, you know, in the book, I sort of drawn all of the different tropes that Shakespeare would have been drawing on. So, you know, you're thinking about black villainy, very stereotypical black villainy, the allusion back to the medieval vice character in the morality plays and, and who may have been on stage in blackface uh, and what that conjures up in people's imagination. So Shakespeare is drawing on all of those, but at the same time, turning them upside down. 
And so this is a technique Shakespeare uses quite a lot in which he's asking you to think about two things at the same time so that you're constantly questioning each of those things that you're thinking about. It's it's mental gymnastics, to be honest. So Aaron, I think, is a character who surprises people. And people have spoken for uh, quite a long time about the fact that, you know, one of the things that this play is about is family relationships, right? So you've got fathers, you've got daughters, you've got mothers who are begging for their lives of their sons. You've got father who kills his own son, and then he kills his daughter out of honor because she's been violated. And you get a sense that Aaron, however, who becomes a parent in the middle of the play because the the empress who he's been with has a baby, which is, you know, in itself really amazing that Shakespeare has a biracial baby on stage, that he is very tender with the child. And, you know, some have even argued that he's the best parent in the play. Yeah. What were attitudes towards uh, biraciality in Shakespeare's day? How, how would Titus audiences have reacted to this? We don't know for sure. I mean, what we know from Imtiaz Habib's research is that interracial relationships and marriages and, and um, the christenings of biracial children was a thing. So we do know that it happened. And Shakespeare himself shows a lot of interest, curiosity about it throughout his canon. So, um, you know, we've got lots of dark ladies pitted against, you know, the, the sort of fair, bright white ladies. And then we've got his sonnets in which a few of them are dedicated to a dark lady. So you get a sense that he's really interested in in interraciality and alternative standards of beauty to the conventional one that he is witnessing in his time period. Uh, And Cleopatra, you make the case, is one of those. How does Shakespeare present her race? So he refers to her twice racially. She talks about how her skin is is black from the amorous pinches of the sun, which basically speaks to a kind of climate theory that had been around for ages, which was one theory for how people have different or darker skin tones. The farther south you go, where there's more sun, there's darker skin tones there. And then later on, she's described as with a tawny front, And so some people say tawny means brown or lighter and black is black. But I think that there are slippages in this time period because there are different skin tones. Uh, If you are a a black person, you 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 might not be very dark. You might be a lighter skin tone. You might be tawny or you might be black. It's really hard to say what Shakespeare was envisioning. So the pinching kind of uh, cues up just my favorite term in your book, uh, misogynoir. Define it for us. So this is a term that was coined by a Black feminist named Moya Bailey, who describes the sort of really intersectional uh, way of thinking about misogyny, which is that it is a, a simultaneous racism and misogyny. So Black women are particularly susceptible to misogyny. And so that's how she refers to it. And and so I'm thinking oversexed black women stereotype, which goes hand in hand with the oversexed African male stereotype, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So like promiscuity, um, the inability to um, control sexual impulses um, is absolutely attached to these stereotypes. Okay, where do we see this at work then in Cleopatra? I mean, is her ethnicity consistently intertwined in the text with her her sexual behavior and her sexual identity? 
I think so. And I think it's also entwined in her association with Egypt itself. You know, Shakespeare read Plutarch, and that's how he he derived the story of Antony and Cleopatra. But Plutarch also wrote about the Egyptians in other texts. And other writers t- spoke about Egyptians as 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 being dark and as being as the women as being overbearing and uncontrollable. Uh, and so a lot of these stereotypes are kind of woven into the imagination at the time. And so Shakespeare, I think, is drawing on on some of that. And, you know, you've got phrases like cool Egypsy's lust and the depiction of her is really through quite an Orientalist, if you're thinking from a contemporary perspective, this sort of an Orientalist uh, depiction of Cleopatra, uh, very much steeped in sort of exotic imagery, but also her temperament, which seems to be very volatile. And that also would have had associations with sexuality. So to summarize then, how do you see Shakespeare interrogating uh, these ideas? Or is he not interrogating here? Um, I mean, I think that's a really good question. He, he, I, I, I don't always want to give Shakespeare a pass. You know, I mean, I can't always give him a pass. Sometimes no, I mean, he's, he's just, a product of his day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So he's sometimes just sort of potentially reinforcing stereotypes, maybe enjoying and relishing in them himself, or he might be actually turning them upside down on their head like he does, I think, with Aaron. And so it's it's hard to say with Cleopatra, I think, because she is extraordinarily intelligent. She does come across as extraordinarily intelligent, as vivacious, as full of gravitas. I mean, there isn't really another woman in Shakespeare who has that same status. So I think he's saying something about about her as as he's imagining her. Yeah, I guess one measure you can speak to is is how Shakespeare's depictions of race compare to other authors of his era. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you do get quite sort of one-dimensional stereotypes in other plays and I think Shakespeare like with a lot of his other characterizations, provides multi-dimensions to his characters. I think that's obviously one of the reasons why he's endured for so long. So, yeah, I think there is something different about the way Shakespeare depicts otherness. Okay, let's talk about Othello. And you argue, among other things, that it's a kind of masterclass in code switching. So spin that out for us. Where do we see this at work in the play? So I think the play has been really viewed as not a race play because Othello is a, a, a very successful Black man in Venetian society. But what's really interesting is that Shakespeare chose Venetian society for a reason, because the upper classes of Venice were patrician, and the patrician elite will let you into their halls of power, but they won't let you into their families. And so there's a real sense of blood purity within that realm. And the patricians were people like the Duke, Brabantio, you know, the the people who were governing Venice and and in control of its wealth. And Othello is very, very useful, right, as a a, a captain, a very skilled and respected and honored captain of the Venetian army. And it's in their interest to make sure that he does what they need him to do, which is to protect Venetian interests in Cyprus and elsewhere against the Turks, who are this sort of looming enemy. And you name this chapter model minority, as in mm-hmm. that racist bias that characterizes Othello as the shining exception to other Moors who act more Black. 
Yeah. Yeah, it feels so modern, yeah. right? So I use this, the, the um, Patricia Collins phrase, uh, the outsider within, which is what it feels like to be an ethnic minority and a white dominant business or theater or university. Um, it, you feel like an outsider, even though you're sort of in the game, as it were. And so everybody looks at you as a kind of model. Oh, you know, and so you do code switch that you, in order to get by in everyday life, you kind of have to do that. And and so you always feel excluded even when you're being included. Now, it's interesting that you, in this chapter, talk about the director Iqbal Khan's Othello and, and his choice to cast a Black actor as Iago. Mm. You, you speculate maybe his idea was to decenter race in this pr- production. But how does a Black-skinned Iago change the racial dynamics in the play for you? I think that it's a couple of ways, and I've thought about it subsequently as well. I said, you know, for one thing, I think it does draw on the idea of colorism within Black communities and also other ethnic minorities. I know for myself and my culture and Pakistani culture, there is colorism. So there's a preference for fairer skin, as it were. And so there is a kind of inter-racism, so to speak, or intra-racism. And so you, that, that is one dynamic that's released by that kind of casting choice. I think the other one is that, you know, there is an argument to be made that Iago may not be racist explicitly at all, but that actually he understands uh, the power of racialized language and the insecurity that might then dislodge Othello from himself because he of, of the notion of internalized racism. And so actually it doesn't matter if he's if he's a lighter skinned black person or if he's white. And that may not really be what's at stake for him, but we know that that's what's at stake for the society. That's interesting because he's lived mm. it so he knows what a powerful tool, what a weapon he has. Exactly. Huh. Um, so you, you did say, People still claim Othello is not about race. Well, what did they do with all the white and fairness uh, illusions with Desdemona and blackness as well? Yeah, I, th- I just think, you know, there are some people who haven't done deep dives into the the those color associations, the white-black binary. I mean, the person that brought this to people's minds was Kim Hall back in 1995 in her book, Things of Darkness. That, you know, the you see these tropes everywhere, and we're not really doing a deep enough dive into what they really meant. When I wrote my book on cosmetics back in 2006, I really wanted to, to find out what they meant by the word fair. Because you see that everywhere and people just thought that meant beautiful. But it doesn't. It's very explicit that it's an elite form of whiteness. Fair means beautiful with a luster. And that luster is God's light shining. So it is virtue, class, and whiteness as a combination, and that is the most elite form of whiteness. So that's why working class women are dissociated from whiteness. And also, women of the upper classes are precarious because Desdemona changes color as time goes on and she's labeled an adulteress and then her face becomes blackened metaphorically. Wow, triple whammy Mm. in that Mm. whiteness. Mm. Well, we bring so much to these plays and I, I want to talk about that, how you can go to a Shakespeare play and you are forced to see stereotypes or forced to see people of color or uh, otherness in through the eyes of the dominant culture. And let's talk about The Tempest, because I think that's how Caliban, the savage, deformed slave, 
is framed. And I recently saw a tempest in which Caliban was a kind of half fish, half man monster type, and which is very common for him to be portrayed that way. It's in the text, after all. Um, but I, I, I was much more aware in this production of how uncomfortable it made me because I feel like I'm being forced to see Caliban only through Prospero's eyes or Europeans' eyes, and maybe that's not where we are with Shakespeare anymore. Um, And you also take issue with this kind of staging of Caliban. Tell me, why? Yeah, I do think that what Shakespeare's doing in that play is showing us the power of language to dehumanize. And so it's literally dehumanized him to the point where we're still staging it like he's a fish or, you know, a, a monster of some kind. Um, And it was really interesting because when we did an anti-racist webinar uh, on The Tempest, we had the uh, indigenous Shakespeare scholar, Scott Stevens, and he was talking about how he wished productions would stage a Caliban that was the opposite of those, of that language, of that rhetoric. And that would make it really clear that it was literally the lens through which we were being forced to look at Caliban through. But I've yet to see that. Hmm. You know, you write really personally about another play, Romeo and Juliet, which mm. which you say was a gateway play for you. It's a gateway play for most people because probably yeah. of my generation, the Zeffirelli movie. But why was it a gateway play for you? Well, partly because of the Zeffirelli film, I was just really captivated by it. And also it felt when, when, I, when we got into the story and I really came to understand what was happening in that play— I realized that it felt it felt Pakistani to me. It reminded me of the story of my own grandmother in India who was, you know, pretty much kept under lock and key. Her father was a very wealthy landowner and she had a lot of brothers and, you know, she was sort of guarded, heavily guarded, and then her marriage was arranged when she was 19. And she was very nervous. I mean, she loved my grandfather, who was one, it was a great match because he was a fantastic man and and she was just never the same after he died. But she was terrified, absolutely terrified. And then my mother's, as I talked about my mother, who kind of rebelled against that kind of convention and married a divorced uh, captain, <laughs> um, uh, much much to her father's dismay for a little while. But, um, that must have caused a stir. <laughs> <laughs> it sure did. He had four kids and she was getting on a ship and sailing away with them. And uh, that was really scary for her parents. But both of those examples just made me think about Juliet. Wow. Well, there's so many modern adaptations of interracial Romeo and Juliet productions, mm. and, you know, starting with West Side Story. So we're used to thinking about the play in those terms, in terms of race, I think. Yes. But you focus in on one metaphor in in a really interesting way, and that's that the lines, it seems she hangs upon the cheek of night as a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Mm. Why pluck those two lines out. What's the significance of this in the play and and the significance to your larger thesis about how blackness is used as a as a prop for whiteness? Hmm. Well, it's just that blackness is used as a prop for whiteness. But the reason why I was really interested in that image is because it reminded me of the the sort of legacy of art and the way in which we view Western art in society, we hardly ever see the Black people in the art. We hardly ever see the Black person who's on the side of the white person. 
And it just reminded me of the invisibility of blackness. You know, that image has been there since the beginning and people tend have not talked about it. You know, I've never really heard anybody talk about that image other than people who are focusing on maybe Shakespeare and race. And so it's it's really surprising how a lot of these images seem to be buried in Shakespeare's imagery and his in his beauty of in the sublimity of his language. It's such an evocative image and it really does do the work of 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 making Juliet seem exceptional. And I think people have been so entranced by Juliet herself and the the way in which she's described. She's one of the most beloved characters in all of Shakespeare. And so we tend to focus on the on the white woman in the frame and not see what's in the background. And so what's really interesting is that imagery is so beloved, but we haven't really looked at how it racializes people. And, you know, it, it's it it's when you have two black actors playing those roles and start starting to dig into what the lines mean when the impact of those words um, are, is felt. Yeah. Mm. I, you know, you admit when you started this project that the idea wasn't to separate Shakespeare from the racism in his text, but to show how it rears its ugly head, and then what do you do with it? You know, what do you do with it as a director, as an, as a reader, as a person sitting in the in the audience? And then, then I looked at your book's subtitle, here in the U.S. anyway, I don't know what it was, in England, How to Love Shakespeare While Talking About Race. And I wondered why you wanted to insert love into into this equation. Why is that so important that it gets it gets second billing, <laughs> if not top billing? Well, I think it's because the top billing is the thing that might scare people. Um, and if you know, it's called the Great White Bard. That's kind of um, kicking a hornet's nest a little bit. Um, and so I wanted to kind of say, you know. We're gonna we're gonna talk about Shakespeare and race, but it's don't worry, he's not going anywhere, and it's all going to be okay, which is kind of really was the message of the of the subtitle is, but it's also because I love Shakespeare, and I I can see the things about the plays that disturb me and make me uncomfortable and have potential to harm audiences. And I feel that if I'm able to grapple with that, as I talk about in the book, being able to look Shakespeare in the eye and say, you know what, I'm going to cut that. Hope you don't mind. Or, you know, let's, let's kind of interrogate this. Why would he say this? And then it becomes an inquiry. I love that. I love that work. I love these plays. I think they're extraordinary, and I think they're extraordinary despite some of the discomfort of those plays, and maybe even because of the discomfort, because the reality is there's discomfort everywhere. There's racism today, everyday racism. And so if you can spot it in Shakespeare, then I think you'll be able to spot it every anywhere else. I, it's been such a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it, and thank you for the book as well. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for talking to me. That was Farah Kareem Cooper talking to Barbara Bogave. The Great White Bard is available now from Viking Press. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Mark Dizani in Surrey and Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs, Inc. 
If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. Our building in Washington, D.C. has been under renovation for the past three years. But next year, we'll open our doors again. Come visit us on Capitol Hill in 2024. Take in a performance in our Elizabethan theater and check out the world's largest collection of first folios, all 82, on display together for the very first time. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.